This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. I'm listening to Billy Joe Shaver. And I'm reading James Joyce. Some people they tell me I've got the blood. Again, Bob Dylan fans around the world. This is your host, Matt Steichen, bringing you another episode of the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. The last time I posted an episode, it got a like from John Fugel saying on Twitter. So, John, if you are actually listening to this show, you are officially invited to join me at a later date to talk Bob. Uh, speaking of the show itself, uh, start with a little bit of a programming note. Uh, I did get the new job that I had just applied for, which means uh, my humble office slash podcast studio that I've had for the last uh, 12, 13 months of doing this show. We will be saying goodbye to it, which means I don't know at my new job if I will be able to record podcasts or not. So this is our last episode from this location and to be determined uh, where and when I will be doing future episodes. Uh, But back to Bob, he was back in the headlines yet again since the last episode went online when he announced he has written a book that will be released in November called The Philosophy of Modern Song. Truly amazing that at 80, he continues to create and try new things. Uh, And that was definitely the fastest I've ever pre-ordered a book on Amazon, that is for sure. And it's always fun to see the fan buzz that's generated online when something new like that is announced. And we just so happen to have a guest today who can provide a unique perspective when it comes to Bob's songwriting process. He's the author of 10 books and has written extensively about Bob and many other topics. He's a professor of English at the University of Tulsa, and he's the founding director of the Tulsa Institute for Bob Dylan Studies. You can read all about him on his website, seanlatham.com, and follow him on Twitter at Sean P. Latham. Joining us from Tulsa is Sean Latham. Welcome, Sean. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a lot of pressure to potentially be the last show in your in your old studio here. Right. I, I'm going to have to figure out all the logistics on that, but hopefully I can find a good, quiet place to record this because I definitely can't do it at home where my kids are always uh, making a lot of noise. So, <laughs> uh, so I want to start talking about uh, the book that Bob just announced. Uh, there was a lot of excitement online because something like that doesn't happen very often, but it certainly wasn't a surprise to me that Bob would want to write something about the craft of songwriting. So what was your reaction to the news and your thoughts on Bob releasing what seems like it will be a pretty candid look at songwriting? I mean, certainly some level of excitement, of course, Uh, as you said, there aren't that many uh, books. I mean, it's the second book Dylan's written. uh, So they'll be very interested. It'll be very interesting to see what's in it. Um, You know, is it actually about songwriting or, or, you know, I don't know. Uh, That's trying to predict anything about what, Dylan will have actually done or whether or not it actually matches up with what's advertised is a pretty significant um, challenge for anybody. So I guess my, you know, my general sense is I'm going to reserve judgment till I see what the thing actually is, how it was written, what it actually is about, what it contains. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly when, when Chronicles came out, 
you know, it, 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 it is a memoir, but it's also a pastiche of all kinds of other texts that are linked together. It's not, uh, you know, it's not overburdened with a sense of being truthful. It's not a memoir in the traditional sense. So I think the idea that Dylan's going to have written a sort of how-to book on songwriting or a sort of series of meditations on songwriting, and to think that's really what it's going to be, uh, that strikes me as over-optimistic. I suspect it's going to be a pretty wide-ranging grab bag of of reflections on music, of, of you know, that sort of Dylan-esque way of sampling from what other people have said and done and written. And it'll keep certainly keep people like me, Dylan Scott, Dollars uh, busy for you know for another decade or so, uh, disentangling all of its many pieces and threads. Yeah, I think the thing that would surprise me the most is if Bob actually referenced himself and his own work very much. Uh, <laughs> like when he had his music care speech, he mostly talked about other artists, and when he yeah, and in Chronicles, he talks a lot about other artists, and he talked a lot about. I think it was at the very end of the. AARP piece, he was like, I really enjoyed this because we actually talked about music. We didn't just talk about me. So I would imagine it's going to be very much focused on other people. Yeah, you know, I would imagine to, I would see this as a sort of textual variant of uh, theme time radio hour, I guess, is the closest thing to what I'm expecting. Uh, you know, one of the things we certainly know about Dylan from looking at all the material in the archive, from listening to his many, many interviews over the years, um, and uh, just listening to the way that that we know his songs work, uh, you know, his, his range of reference is enormous. He's fascinated, as you said, by a sort of rich complexity of the musical cultures in which he's found himself embedded over. 80 years of life now. So, you know, I think that's the thing that I would expect to see here is a, is a lot of stuff that's coming at us sideways or unexpectedly. It's, as you said, Dylan thinks about other musicians and how music works generally, um, how songwriting works, maybe not his songwriting, but the kind of songwriting perhaps that he admires uh, and enjoys. Uh, and just a sort of general fascination with the creative process, which is, you know, clearly there in all of Dylan's work and not just as a singular practice, but, you know, I mean, again, you see this when you look in the archive, Dylan's own creative process changes constantly over the years. So, you know, my dream ideal of what this book would be, would be a reflection on the different modes of songwriting that are available and that can take all kinds of different shapes and forms. Uh, and Dylan sort of thinking about how he's drawn on those different practices and remix them constantly in his own work, whether or not that's what we'll get. I have no idea. I think we all are going to have to wait to November to find out. Yeah. You've, as you said, you've had access to the archives, one of the few people that has, and we'll get into all sorts of stuff about that later, but uh, you're also writing your own book, Bob Dylan's Odyssey, that is about the creative process and about songwriting, I'm sure to some extent. Uh, how has that book been informed by your access to seeing all of Bob's notes over the years? And how do you think uh, your book is going to compare to Bob's book? Because it seems like <laughs> if you're if you're focusing on talking about uh, the process of being creative and writing, that there might be some similarities to some extent. Well, my book will be nowhere near as interesting or sell as many copies as Dylan's book. I think I can certainly start there. Um, and, and, you know, this that, that book is going to be a, a very long project. In fact, I'll say I've been sort of sidetracked from it, in part because you said I've, I've had a chance to look at, at significant chunks of the archive. It's a massive thing. No one can really get their head completely around it. I have... You know, I mean, one one reason the Institute, in fact, exists here at the University of Tulsa is because there's so much work that this an archive of this scope of this depth of this complexity can generate. It's not just the 
the you know Dylan's notebooks and the drafts of the songs. It's the letters that Dylan's received. It's the film. It's all of the the sort of studio tapes. There's just so much there that I think it'll be difficult for anyone to get their arms around it. So, me tracking Dylan through his Odyssey is probably going to take a decade or more just to even get a sense of what that looks like. And and it's really hard, I'll say, as you work through some of this material to not get just utterly distracted and buried in some of the things that you find. So I've, I've become particularly interested, for example, in Dylan's, um, and this is because I, I should step back and say, one of the things that I've looked at the most deeply and with the most care are the, the, the series of small notebooks that uh, Dylan kept or that emerged in the archive. There's some of the earliest things in the archive just because of the historical accident of how it took shape. But they're the notebooks that Dylan kept and used to write the songs that would become the basement tapes, but also all of what he was reading and thinking about during that period. They're tiny, top-bound, spiral notebooks, the kind of thing you can easily put in a guitar case or your back pocket. Um, they're filled with song lyrics and biblical quotes and like the things he thinks he should listen to and ideas for um, albums and, you know, titles, but also grocery lists. You know, there's like, remember to get your driver's license. Like the renewed is like, you know, there's a list in there. There's some sketches clearly for a dining room that he wants to construct in Woodstock, a packing list for a vacation in the tropics, all kinds of just the kinds of things one keeps in a notebook uh, to help, help you remember your life. Uh, and you know, one of the things I've talked about this in past conferences, one of the things I found in there was was Dylan's attempt to write a song about Richard Speck, sort of the, the, the first celebrity serial killer or mass murderer in America, right? This guy that killed all these nurses in Chicago. Dylan was, while Dylan was in Woodstock, Speck was on trial um, uh, and uh, in, in the process of being condemned to death. And then he came off death row when, uh, when, when the death penalty was rendered briefly illegal in the United States by the Supreme Court. So Dylan's following these cases very closely and he actually tries to write essentially a murder ballad, like a version of, of Woody Guthrie's Pretty Boy Floyd about Richard Speck. It's the most unsettling, disturbing thing you can imagine, right? He's Dylan's try, clearly trying to think through the idea of what would it mean to sort of really write a contemporary murder ballad in the way that Woody Guthrie did. I mean, we we probably now have a pretty romantic version of who of who Pretty Boy Floyd was, but he was a pretty vicious murderer. There's some debates about the actual historical circumstances of some of the, the murders in which he participated, but he was just a terrible person. Um, and certainly at the time Dylan was writing, at the time Woody Guthrie rather was writing about him, there was it was pretty widely accepted that he'd participated in this terrible shootout in Kansas city, just opened fire uh, on a bunch of cops in a can in Kansas city's busiest train station, right? This is like walking into Dulles airport and, and gunning down a bunch of TSA officers or something like that. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible, terrible crime, shocked the nation, create essentially helped create the FBI. I mean, J Edgar Hoover made him made Floyd number one on his, um, you know, uh, on the, FBI's most wanted list. Uh, and Guthrie still managed to make this kind of rollicking romantic song um, about this guy. And clearly you see Dylan sort of thinking through in his head, can you do something now with a contemporary criminal of that nature? Somebody that had sh genuinely shocked the conscience of the nation with just this extreme act of violence and brutality. Uh, and he, he, there's a draft of a full song there. It's pretty interesting. It's called Nasty Man. 
to his credit, I think he does not record it, but it's very interesting to see him do this. And as I dug into this, I started to find other examples. You know, Dylan does have a real interest in writing about murderers. Uh, they, they sort of filter their way in and out of songs and in, in doing so, thinking about violence. Curiously, Dylan, who's, you know, even while he's in Woodstock, he's not he's not writing about Vietnam. He's not writing about like there's there's violence everywhere uh, in the United States in the mid 60s. Right. He never really writes about that, but he does become fascinated by these individual murderers uh joey gallo right? um a bit later uh richard speck so so I, I will say for the moment and this is a long way of answering your question i've been totally distracted by dylan's sort of fascination with murders and and a sort of larger subgenre of music i discovered about serial killers and mass murderers that that dylan and guthrie seem to be these sort of foundational figures for helping other songwriters think about how to bend pop music toward thinking about these really marginal sort of and shocking cases of, of murder and violence in America and how song can and should process such things. Yeah, I think his development of characters like that is definitely kind of a byproduct of the folk tradition and almost like a challenge to himself to see if he could take that format that Woody Guthrie kind of created there and, and see if he could uh, put it into a modern scope. I was going to ask when you were looking at the archives for the first time and you started to sort all through all that, um, was your one of your main takeaways that Bob was such a meticulous craftsman of lyrics? I mean, I think one of the main uh, misinterpretations or misconceptions about Bob is that at some point in his career, he was like almost a divine conduit where these things were just like occurring to him out of thin air. And he was like uh, divinely inspired or something. But uh, to me, I've always thought it's much more impressive and much more inspiring that he really, you know, just works and works at this. Uh, you know, over the course of 60 years or more now, he's been grinding out the words and perfecting every little phrase and every little word and letter in these songs. Is that kind of what you saw once you were started sorting through all this stuff? I would say, yes, that's true of the archival material, because that's what archival material has to look like, right? That is, you save the you save your drafts. Um, and so if there's a if there's this kind of textual record, you're going to see it being worked and reworked, and you definitely see many many examples of that. Um, and and certainly and certainly starting with the the Woodstock notebooks. Now Dylan himself, like in that sixty inter, sixty minutes interview, for example, um, talks about the fact that that's not really how he wrote songs early in his career. That he really did have these things just kind of strike like lightning. And you know he's, he you know he told the interviewer at the time, I can't do that anymore, but I can do other things now. And and so I I. This is maybe one of this goes back to your question about about the book about songwriting. I don't think there's one way in which Dylan writes a song. I think right. he, he he engages in lots of different practices over the year, and and I'm not sure every song is meticulously crafted. Some of them absolutely are. I think some did sort of fall like, uh, you know, like lightning bolts out of the sky, and he managed to capture them, uh, you know, in, in a bottle and you know produce. Uh, things like hard rain, I suppose, or um, blowing in the wind. I mean, you know, he, he said again and again that song. He just kind of, just kind of came to him. At least the first two verses did, right? And and was performed the night that he wrote it. <laughs> uh, so I don't think there's a way that Dylan writes a song. I mean, if there's one takeaway from the archive for me, it's that Dylan. One of the things that makes Dylan very interesting is the fact that there isn't a singular practice. There's not a sort of, I'm going to set some chords up and now I'm going to set some lyrics to it, or I'm going to, I'm going to create some rhyme charts and sort of then work back from the lyrics here. 
uh, or I'm, I'm going to write some lyrics and then set some chords to it. That's that's just not how he seems to work. It, it's it's there seem to be a whole variety of different processes and experiments from sort of you know some of which we can sort of document after the fact. The kind of almost you know Burroughs like cut up method of of pulling quotations and words from other places and crafting them, uh, you know, into a song versus just sitting down and sort of seeing what he can do, taking an old song and reworking either the melody or the lyrics or some combination of the two. So so I, I don't think it's it's ever gonna we're never, I don't think we're ever gonna get to a point where we say this is how Dylan writes a song. Dylan wrote lots of songs in lots of different ways and continues to find and experiment with new ways of writing songs as well. Right. I guess we can see the times when he did really work things out because that's what's in the archives, like you said. Uh, but are there other artists? I don't uh, know a lot about the archival uh, situation for other artists. Are there, is there a lot of examples of artists who had this long of career who saved this much stuff or is this a pretty unusual thing? Well, there are lots of big archives out there. You know, I think one of the reasons we have a Dylan archive in part is because of Dylan's age, that 80 years old matters. Dylan, Dylan's a pre-digital guy, right? Um, and as a result, he sort of—I mean—he lived in a in in a in a world of writing. Uh, he wrote letters. People wrote letters to him, right? We have this incredible bag of fan of fan mail, right? Before Instagram, when I was totally unopened, right? This bag of fan mail from the year that he had the motorcycle accident. One of my graduate students is slowly opening it uh, and and creating this incredible sort of Excel spreadsheet. That, that tracks every letter that's within it. And this, and I mention this because this is the kind of culture in which Dylan lived in as a culture of paper and of writing and of notebooks. There was, there was no sort of, you know, I mean, even like there weren't portable recorders, right? I mean, you had to make this stuff up and, and, and write it. And so in that sense, Dylan is sort of looking back or is sort of linked backward to the sort of golden age of writing in, in, in the Americas, the sort of late 19th and early 20th century. And certainly when you look at archives of writers from that period, Faulkner, James Joyce, they have massive sprawling archives, you know, draft after draft of, of novels. If you've never been in an archive before, especially if you're looking in the early 20th century, this was a world in which, you know, in, in England, in London, the mail was delivered three or four times a day. I mean, it was like email in that sense, right? Like this was a this was how you circulated information was on paper and in writing. And people saved that stuff and it stacked up and it created, that's why archives are so big. That's why they live in such enormous buildings. And Dylan, because he's sort of just old enough to have been a part of that world where the mail is sort of what linked you to the rest of the world and where writing was a thing that was more common than the telephone. I mean, I'm sure when Dylan, I'm sure when Dylan was growing up, he was probably on a trunk line. That is the telephone was not a private medium. Anybody could pick up the phone and hear what you were saying. Uh, and, and it was a very expensive mails. The mail was subsidized by the U S government, right? Much more than it is now very inexpensive. So it was just a world where that's how you communicated with everyone. And so that, that generates these really big archives. I don't think Kanye West's archive is going to be that big because it's, it's all going to fit on a hard drive. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you can see this with, uh, with Salman Rushdie's archive, which is at Emory, for example. Um, it's all sitting on a computer. That's how Rushdie wrote. You can, and when you access that archive, you you literally go into the to the 
to the library and they have a sort of recreation of the of the apple macintosh in which he wrote uh things like satanic verses and you can see the folders that he had and how he organized things and that, that was just a different way of writing and composing and and thus the archive's not big there's a lot of text there but it's the kind of text i guess we're used to dealing with emails and digital drafts saved one right after the other right when 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 you look at writers or, or artists from that pre-digital era to write a draft out meant to write out or type out your entire novel again and again and again, right? So it just generates so much more paper and volume than we have now. And so, yes, the Dylan archive is huge. I don't think we'll have that many more sprawling archives of this kind, just because Dylan is a is is a is a is a, is a sort of graphic that is a, 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 a what I want to say. He's a a graphophile, right? He's somebody who loves to write. He loves to set pen to paper and, and you see that. So tell me about uh, how the whole archive came to be in Tulsa. Uh, people know uh, your relationship uh, to Bob as uh, your role as the director of the Institute. Um, tell me how the Institute and the archive and uh, this uh, new Bob Dylan museum sort of will the Bob Dylan center all come together and uh how they work together and how they all came to be in Tulsa. Yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, obviously I, I didn't have anything to do with this. Uh, this, uh, it was brought to Tulsa in part because, well, not in part entirely, I would say because of a wealthy philanthropist here in Tulsa named George Kaiser, um, who has dedicated himself to making and his, in his fortune of, you know, billions of dollars, um, to making Tulsa into a thriving and vibrant city. Most of his money goes into sort of, uh, you know, massive community projects, uh, uh, helping women who have, uh, I mean, Oklahoma has one of the highest incarceration rates of women in the country. In fact, it used to have the highest incarceration rate of women in the country. So he funds lots of programs that are designed to reunite formerly incarcerated women with their families, with their children, sort of get them back on their feet, get them jobs, you know, big sort of socially transformative things like that. But he also sees that or believes that I think to, to have a genuinely thriving city, you need to have a thriving art scene. So uh, he acquired initially the Woody Guthrie Center, uh, the Woody Guthrie Archive, and brought and brought that here from New York, where it had formerly been housed. Uh, he built in downtown Tulsa a, a sort of a museum row that that houses the Woody Guthrie Center, but also some contemporary galleries, other museums. Uh, uh, he built an outdoor sort of park that has a concert stage on it, all to create this kind of cultural center in Tulsa that we call the Arts District. Uh, and one of the crowning pieces of this then became acquiring the Bob Dylan archive when when it became available. Um, he spent a lot of money on it. Dylan said he was happy to have the archive come here in part because uh, it would be you know, right down the street. It is literally two doors down uh, the street from... Uh, from the Woody Guthrie Center. Uh, and he sees Tulsa, you know, Dylan said something about the sort of Native American history of, of Oklahoma. This was Indian country, of course. Um, and, but, you know, I think the basic answer, how did it come here? Kaiser had a lot of money. The university contributed a small amount to help bring it uh, here as well, which is how the Institute piece of this took shape. Um, and, it, it was acquired and purchased and brought here. And uh, Kaiser's building this Bob Dylan Center, as you said, this kind of museum. Museum's maybe not quite the right right word. It's it's going to open on May 10th uh, to the public. I've seen sort of previews of what it's going to look like. I would say it's a sort of multi-sensory exploration of Dylan and his world rather than a museum. Um, the Woody Guthrie Center is more like a museum. Here's where Guthrie was on this date, on this date, and this date. Here's what songs he wrote, and here's a here's the This Land manuscript, all beautifully lit up, and all of Guthrie's amazing cartoons and drawings. I think the Dylan Center is going to 
going to look and be a little bit different uh, than that. It'll be a different kind of experience. Dylan's just a different kind of guy. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think would appreciate having his life told in a sort of museum like way. That's just right. Doesn't vibe with our understanding of Dylan. Uh, you know, for my part, the piece that I, that I operate is called the Dylan Institute. It's based at the University of Tulsa and we're the sort of scholarly arm of all this. You know, we're the ones that as an arc, as, as, as scholars, as professors, as teachers, we know how to lead and operate research on big archives like this. Uh, Dylan is actually the second Nobel laureate whose papers are deposited here in Tulsa. Uh, you know, we have another, we have, we have an, an incredible collection of, of material in, in our special collections at the university that have long driven research here. We have one of the world's best collections of James Joyce papers here. The other Nobel Prize winner we have is B.S. Naipaul, whose life archive is here. We have the papers of Stevie Smith and Rebecca West, just incredible research collection that draws scholars from all, all over the world. So we sort of already know how to do the kinds of things that scholars do uh, with archives. And, you know, I think the other thing that's probably important to keep in mind about the Institute and about what archives are for and what they do, these are things that, you have to think about in terms of centuries, right? We're, we're fascinated to see the newness, I suppose, of the, of the Bob Dylan archive. There's still a lot there to see and discover that no one has seen, right? Or two or three people have seen to this point. That will gradually change. But, but one thing an archive lets us do is continue to do work on figures like Dylan, right? For centuries into the future. And I, I think that's an important part of what bringing the Dylan archives here, building the center, building a, a scholarly institute, that the, the center's job is to sort of present Dylan anew to people who don't know who he is 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 50 years from now, right? The institute's job is to think even longer term than that. How does this continue to tell us about the story of, of America, of American music, of popular music, of popular culture, of this transformative 20th century, the American century? Um, that's the sort of prize, I think, on which you know, on which the Institute uh, has set its eyes. You mentioned the murder ballad song and some of the other early basement tape stuff. Are there any other uh, of your favorite items that jump to mind as far as stuff that you've gotten to see that fans would be excited to know about or hear about? Well, I mentioned earlier the, the fan letters, which, uh, uh, my graduate student uh, named Nathan Blue is is pouring over. Those to me remain some of the most fascinating things in the archive because this is Dylan's fans writing back to him, and the things that they include are extraordinary. Um, it, not only does it give us because the because the letters were unopened, we have the envelopes. So one thing Nathan, for example, has been able to do is to look exactly at where Dylan's fans were, right? Like we can look at the outside of an envelope and see where did this letter come from? Oh, this one's from Italy, right? This one's from, there are a bunch from New York. There are a bunch from San Francisco. How did these fans find Dylan at this point? How did he become popular? We had all the letters laid out on a table or Nathan did. And there's sort of the moment just before the accident where there are small stacks of letters. And then when the, when the news of the accident begins to come out and people actually think Dylan is dead, right? Huge stacks of letters, all of a sudden people trying to get onto this death cult, right? Is this going to be the sort of, you know, rock star flaming out story? People want to send, send all kinds of things to him. Uh, and, and, and you can just see this literal sort of increase in Dylan fandom that's clearly tied to the idea that he's either dead or badly injured or something like that. And people send him the wildest stuff. Like, you know, they send lyrics that they, this, I mean, even the fact that, uh, you know, it always, it's always fascinating to me throughout the show, you call him Bob, right? Uh, I've, I've studied lots of authors. I'm an English professor. I've never called James Joyce, Jim. Yeah, I've never called William <laughs> Faulkner, Billy. 
right? There's something affective that is emotionally connected to Dylan that makes people call him by his first name. Is I, I even Tom Petty? Like I don't hear anybody call Tom, right? Um, there's something uh, really, really interesting to me about just that usage of Bob, and you see it in these letters. People have this incredible emotional connection to him. Like they hear his music, they then write lyrics that they send back to him, in the full expectation he's going to perform their lyrics on stage. Like they have some kind of very close relationship to him. You know, dear Bob, I've written the song for you. You know, I assume you'll perform it at your next show or something. I mean, that's just mind blowing to me, but you see example after example of this uh, in the fan letters. Um, I don't think anybody would do that now, but clearly in the in the early sixties, this is how people perceive Dylan. And that, that emotional connection has never gone away even among successive generations of fans. Uh, and so I, I would say that's one of the most interesting things. So I, I, I regret we only have this one bag of fan mail. It was clearly just accidentally forgotten. It was all moldy. It was all the set. The letters were unopened. It clearly just got shoved in a room in Woodstock and forgotten about. And it's now a time capsule. Um, you know, there, there are also, as you can imagine, uh, you know, there's some great, there's some great letters in there. Dylan was, a, was corresponding with lots of interesting people, um, poets, as well as songwriters, uh, and just especially in the when you start to look at the material from the 70s, uh, you know, that that's where you really see this idea of Dylan as the meticulous songwriter, right? Draft after draft, a foot of pride. Right? I mean, where Dylan just can't seem to leave a song alone. We see it, of course, most famously with Tangled Up in Blue, which has been pretty well documented. But you can actually see it with nearly every song from that period where it's just this almost obsessive return to the lyrics and working through them. So I think that's that's certainly stuff people are going to find interesting. And of course, there's tons and tons of film footage that we haven't seen all of that Ronaldo and Clara footage from, uh, you know, from Rolling Thunder review and whatnot. It's it's all in there. Rehearsal tapes. Yeah, there's just there's just a lot. We still don't have our, our arms all the way around it at this point. Uh, Bob's coming through town in a couple of weeks. Do you think or have you heard if he's planning to, like, stop in and see what's going on with this whole thing? Uh, I have not heard, so I cannot speak with any uh, any certainty at all other than to say, I'm sure he's utterly indifferent. <laughs> uh, I will. I I saw him in twenty. Let's see, in twenty nineteen. No, in twenty sixteen. Uh, that's when we acquired the archive. Shortly after the archive was acquired, he was awarded the Nobel Prize. Just after that, he toured through Tulsa. Uh, played. He played at a small, at a relatively small venue here called then called the Brady Theater, now called the Tulsa Theater, and. It's, uh, you know, we thought this is going to be the moment. It's, 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 it was in that that strange interlude where Dylan had been awarded the Nobel Prize, but had been ignoring the Nobel Prize Committee, which no one had ever done. Famous people had turned it down for political and other reasons. No one had ever ignored them before. So it was this like, in a Dylan way, like this Chaplin-esque comedy of just pretending the Nobel Prize didn't exist somehow. But here he was. He was in Tulsa. The archive was here. It seemed, you know, it just been acquired that the Nobel Prize, it seemed like he'd at least say something from the stage in Tulsa. Something would happen. You know, it was straight up Dylan show. He walked out. Black Box Theater did not say a word about the fact that he was in Tulsa. It could have been Toledo or Tucson, right? Performs, leaves the stage. Nothing happens. He did visit the Woody Guthrie Center while he was here. Um, and, and I think expressed genuine disinterest in most of it, except for when he got to see some of Guthrie's lyrics and, and cartoons. He became very interested in, in a few things in there, I know. Um, so will he come and look at his own museum? I, I suspect the answer is no. 
maybe um he's too he's too i mean weird weird is the easy word to use eccentric is a sort of maybe a better word uh and as you said he's writing a book he's touring i i think he would say my mind is on other stuff I mean, other people are worried about my past i'm really worried about my future i'm still a working touring artist i'm writing books i'm writing new songs i'm trying to perfect my my performance and work with band my band mates I don't have time to sort of stop back and nostalgically think about, oh man, I looked so young in those, you know, when I was dressing up as Woody Guthrie. So I, I think in that sense, he doesn't have a ton of interest in that that mode of that sentimental mode of looking back. And museums can't help it; they're sentimental institutions. And I I think he would probably recoil from anything that he saw there. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that dynamic for fans. Or what is it? What it is about Bob that makes fans feel so strongly and and feel so connected to him? Uh, I have an excuse. I do call him Bob because we have mutual friends. So when I hear them call him Bob, then it's like, oh well, I'm just talking about this guy that my friend knows. So then it feels like I'm not crazy. But I know there are lots of people that are like more, even more delusional than I am. Who, you know, uh, that that's one of the things I've always been fascinated by is that that, that Bob brings that out of some people. Uh, yeah. So you got to organize that 2019 event that brought scholars and fans together in Tulsa. Uh, what was that dynamic like? And was what was that experience like for you to play such a big role in making that happen? Because all the people I've talked to has so such a positive experience there. Uh, well, it shocked us. I've organized lots of conferences uh, in the past. So uh, my background is as a James Joyce scholar. I also helped create a thing called the Modernist Studies Association that was a sort of rethinking of early 20th century culture. And I've just I've organized conferences. I just have a, a gene that lets me do it. And we thought we'd do this for Dylan. And we thought we'd do it the way, the way academic conferences generally work is you sort of put out what we call a call for papers. People submit ideas. We vet them, create some panels. And, and it's usually everybody that's at the conference is also giving a paper at the conference. That's that's the sort of cycle of how it works. So we thought we could do this. We might have 200 people come. That would be like the, the scope of Dylan scholars in the world that would come and do this. Two months before, eight weeks before the conference began, we had to close registration at 500. That was the most that our that our that our facilities could hold that, that we'd selected. Uh, and only half of them had a .edu address. So we'd accidentally tapped into this fascinating crossover between fans on the one hand and scholars on the other. And they came together and that's what made it such a fascinating and wonderful experience. And we had plenty of fans that were presenting right there. The, one of the really interesting things about, well, I suppose this is interesting about both scholars and, and fans. Uh, fans have their own kinds of expertise right now in particular, when an artist is still alive, um, when it's somebody like Dylan, who still has like lots of first degree relationships, as you said, mutual friends, right? People who know him uh, are out there and have been collecting ticket stubs or whatever since, you know, 1963. Uh, they have a kind of expertise that scholars don't have. We just don't, we can't see into that world of collectors and fans and, um, and tape, you know, tape all the tapers out there, right? Who have created their own vast Bob Dylan archives that are sort of unofficial, but but are far bigger in some ways than the Bob Dylan archive itself. So they brought their own kind of expertise to this uh, event, and then you had the sort of more traditional scholars who sort of worked with the material that's available and wrote about it in scholarly ways. And what and I think uh, what then made that experience really special was that these two groups could talk 
comfortably and fully to one another. There was no sort of like all of the all of the scholars stood in one corner and looked suspiciously at all of the fans in the other corner. Right? These they they had dinners together. They you know they hung out together. They exchanged ideas. They exchanged tapes. They exchanged information that they had, and so it made it into this remarkably generative and generous community. And uh, it was unlike anything I'd really ever seen before. I've, 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 as I said, I've worked in all these other kinds of communities, um, scholarly communities, but I've never seen something like this that could be almost literally 50-50 split between academics and non-academics, and yet create a sense of shared discovery, pleasure, and joy all in the same, uh, all in the same venue. It was, it was, it was a really great experience, and and it made us realize. One, the power of Dylan to do this, right? We, we could do this because Dylan's work bridged this divide. It's not because we scholars or we fans did anything special. It's Dylan that that created this unique community. All we did was sort of create an opportunity for it to come together. And it was alchemy. Uh, you know, we've created now a pretty thriving community that mixes these two groups together. And it's uh, it's been really fun as part, as, at least in the, from the Institute's uh, side of things to to continue to facilitate those conversations, you know, those conversations and debates, and to to keep this this alchemy bubbling away. I think it almost fulfills uh, this whole Bob would bristle at this, but it fulfills almost like a religious <laughs> need for camaraderie. People have this passion for Bob, and they're almost like seeking out fellowship because they don't have a podcast to talk about him on, or they don't have family members around that are as obsessed as they are. So they're really they have this like need full for some kind of spiritual fulfillment to talk about this thing that they love with other people that feel the same way about it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. It was it was a community, and and it's a it's an international community. I mean, we had, I think I, I'd have to go back and look at the exact numbers, but I would say anywhere between fifteen and twenty percent of the people that attended came from outside the United States, for example. And you begin to see where these huge pockets of Dylan fans and scholars are. Scandinavia is one of the strongest, for example. Uh, England, of course, um, Italy. Uh, and that 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 is really a fascinating uh, part of this as well. But I mean, you're right. This, these are people who are looking for community and and uh, and and because Dylan is still making new music, right? Scholars are super uncomfortable with that kind of stuff. We don't really like to write about people that are still alive. We prefer our our objects of study to be dead because um, that way we can say whatever we want about them when they can't tell us we're wrong. Um, but it also there's a kind of curatorial process to the academy that is we you know we tend to study stuff that we think is sort of test has, has endured at least some some bit of the test of time because Dylan is so long lived because his impact on the culture is so enormous um, essentially making pop music into a serious art form right it does create this opportunity uh, for community of the kind that I'm describing that is that is relatively unique I think. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't know if Dylan fandom would look the way that it does now if if he died in that motorcycle accident, for example, or if he'd stopped, if he'd retired from touring when he was sixty or something like that. The the mere fact that he's going and is kind of a living monument to the evolution of popular American music from 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 its recording in America, right? From that sort of early Woody Guthrie music on 78s, the earliest recording and therefore sharing of popular music as an idiom that could extend nationally instead of being sort of, you know, it's what you could hear down at the local concert hall or the back porch of your neighbors, right? So this moment that music could have a national audience through to now where pop music, I just came from South by Southwest is a business, right? A massive, massive entertainment business that 
uh, means I heard somebody at South by Southwest compare it uh, essentially same music as something like a utility, basically the same number of people that stream or have access or report listening to music at least once a week is the same number of people that report using the internet once a week. It, it Music is a utility in the United States in that sense. Um, and that's at the far end from where sort of Woody Guthrie started before he was even recording songs, just kind of touring around and playing bars. And Dylan's career stretches over this and he's never stopped sort of both making music and thinking about that that sort of intersecting streams of music and all of their complexities that have brought us from the dawn of recorded sound to now. Did you have any fan encounters at that 2019 event where you said, wow, this is this shows the obsessiveness of Bob Dylan fans, any like behaviors or conversations or anything like that? Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, I think the funniest thing to me <laughs> uh, was collectors are thieves. <laughs> um, and I say that in a gentle and nice way. Uh, we Anything we didn't absolutely nail down was taken. Um, and it was the most absurd things. Like we got little stickers cause we're in university. We got little stickers with like, put on your name tags with your preferred pronouns on them. Uh, and people were just swiping those, uh, maybe not the he, she ones, but we had some Zzer, you know, we had, we, we had, we had some of the more unusual pronouns stickers on there and people didn't know what they were. So they thought it must be a Dylan thing. So they just, they would just kind of come up to the table. I, my graduate students would watch them just who were manning these tables, just watch them like, you know, like do this little bit of misdirection, like, oh, what's that behind you? And like swipe one of these sticker pads. <laughs> and and on the final day of the conference, I remember driving, uh, I was doing another interview and I was driving back to the hotel and I saw walking down the street, a, a well-known collector who had all of the directional signs from the conference under his arms. He'd just gone and taken them down from the walls of the hotel and was was walking away with our signs, which, you know, it was, I don't care, we we're going to throw them away anyway, but that's the level of obsessiveness. I, was like, I, don't, I, I don't have the collector's bug, but it was fascinating to see it on display there. And of course, every sample book, anything we had that might have Dylan's name on it, we gave out little pins that were, that were just meant to sort of put you into two different groups from when we had things that had limited capacity, uh, all that got stolen. But as I said, anything we didn't nail down, the fans just, they wanted it. They wanted everything. Uh, and I mean, we sold out of t-shirts. It was, you know, academics and t-shirt. Like I, mean, I thought it would be a lark to make a t-shirt for something like this. Uh, I did not anticipate that merchandise would be a major income stream <laughs> for for the conference itself. That's not really how uh, my experience of conferences has worked in the past. So, yeah, I mean that that fandom is powerful. It's it's and it's it's funny in some ways to watch the collectors bug at work, uh, and fascinating. I mean, as a scholar, of course, I find that stuff utterly fascinating. How how what people want to do with with Dylan related things is absolutely fascinating. To me. So tell us what's going on now coming up in May for the Bob Dylan Center and for the Institute surrounding the grand opening. Well, the, the, the center is going to open on May 10th to the public. Um, and there are a couple of events that are sort of, sort of Elvis Costello is coming. There's going to be some, some concerts and things around that. Now, the Dylan Center itself isn't it's not huge. It's in a relatively small building spread across three floors. So it's timed admission. So we can't have. 500 people, for example, show up on the first day, they can't all get tickets and get through the experience and I suppose meet the fire marshal's requirements and those sorts of things. So uh, so the Institute is going to host its own conference called Dylan and the Beats um, on June 3rd through the 5th. So just a, less than a month afterward uh, as a way of sort of trying to spread out the people that are going to come visit the, the center, the Institute, come take all of this in. Uh, and 
And that's a three-day conference um, that is a, a bit like the world of Dylan. One, it's more like it's actually closer to what we did for the Dylan at eighty event, which was all virtual for his eightieth birthday. So we didn't put out a giant call for papers. We really are just bringing only invited speakers, and we still have some COVID restrictions in place, of course. So it's a very limited number of in-person tickets um, will be available for this. That we'll we'll be streaming it to anyone that's that that wants to attend. Uh, and that'll be spread across three days. We've got musicians, we've got scholars, we've got songwriters, we've got journalists, uh, music writers, all of those sort of things coming to talk about um, this really, to us, very interesting intersection of maybe the most famous American poetic movement probably ever, um, but certainly of the 20th century, the beat movement, which Dylan said drove his the transformation of his lyrics from being a sort of folk writer, someone steeped in the folk tradition, you know, to someone that's really engaged with contemporary American poetry. Uh, and so we really want to use the opportunity, the opening of the Dylan Center and the archives to explore this, this close and fascinating um, connection between the, the biggest poetic movement of the 20th century and the biggest songwriter of the 20th century. Uh, and so we think it's going to be a, a really you know, really fun three days of, of exploring this and thinking about some unexpected connections like Dylan's relationship to jazz, which we don't really talk about, but that bop writing of Kerouac is Dylan and Ginsburg both believed that, you know, that the, the a sort of jazz influence was essential to Dylan's, um, Dylan's songwriting. So uh, that's, that's what we'll be exploring. And then our plan now is for 20 and 2023, uh, we'll return to the world of Bob Dylan model where we'll have a full and open conference and, you know, hope to invite this time 700 people to Tulsa or more, uh, you know, as many as we can cram into our facilities uh, as, as COVID, as COVID hopefully abates and we're able to return to these kind of large scale in-person events. In 2020, you edited and released a book called The World of Bob Dylan. Was that kind of a companion piece to the Institute rollout? Uh, what what brought that book about? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the the book came out because my 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 a friend and editor of mine at Cambridge uh, said, "You got to do this book." Um, and I said, "And I don't really know what we can do yet." Uh, but he's the one that came up. His name's Ray Ryan. He's the one who came up with the title, "The World of Bob Dylan," uh, and. And we thought, I just taught, I just taught a course on Dylan. Uh, in fact, so we'd acquired the archive in, in, in 20, it was announced in 2016. We'd hired, we'd acquired it in 2015, but it was all quite top secret. Uh, and uh, I was called in, I learned of it when I was called into the then president of the university's office. And he said, uh, you know, I've got this exciting news. We've acquired this, this archive with the time the university had acquired 10% of it. Uh, alongside the George Kaiser Family Foundation. And he said, you seem to be the guy on campus who knows a lot about studying one person. I was, I was editing the James Joyce Quarterly. Uh, he said, you know, what can we do with this? And so we had a conversation and then he said, well, look, we do you think you can teach a course on Dylan, uh, you know, coming this spring so that when we make the announcement, it looks like we know what we're doing. Like, you know, no one had ever caught a, taught a course on Bob Dylan here before. So I hastily assembled a course on Dylan. Uh, and... Uh, it was a fascinating sort of experience because I had uh, 20 students was a full class <laughs> and upper intended largely for upper level English majors. I was kind of open to anybody on campus. Uh, and again, no one knew about the archive yet. So it seemed like this thing that was kind of coming out of left field. And <laughs> I taught the course. I thought I had this great way. We were going to have the first day. We we're going to talk about all the complexities of tangled up in blue and how it works as a song. And so I came in and, you know, we, 
you know, we played a little bit of the song. We were start talking about it. None of the students had ever heard of Tangled Up and Blue before. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. What a terrible way to start the day. I said, okay, we'll fall back to something easier. Look, I'm sure you all know Blowing in the Wind. So we'll start with that about the song. And they're like, you know, I blank faces. And then one timorous young woman in the back row raised her hand and said, um, Professor, that song's by Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> um, uh, my parents have that album. And I thought, okay. First of all, you can all go home for today. Clearly, I have failed you as a teacher. But I said, you know, but but before you leave, the one thing I want you to do is to uh, just go Google your favorite artists and Bob Dylan's name, and I bet you they have I, they have covered a Dylan song. Come back in, we'll talk about those covers on the next class day. And sure enough, that was a huge success. Like they all came in, they're like, Adele wrote that. Like Adele didn't write that song. That's a Bob Dylan song. I mean, you know, just again and again examples of this. So, so in some sense, I knew we needed to make a, a book like this because these students knew somehow Dylan was important, like somewhere there. Because ironically, they were like, my parents said I needed to take this course, or my brother said he'd kill me if I didn't take this course. That's why they were there. Um, and so I knew we needed to make a book like this that was a sort of overarching introduction to all the different facets of Dylan. Dylan is a writer. Dylan is a, a sort of, you know, is Dylan's biography, Dylan's religious beliefs and their complexities, uh, Dylan's influences on country music, rock music, folk music, uh, all of those sorts of things. So we knew we needed this kind of, I didn't want to write a sort of dummy's guide to Bob Dylan. Instead, I wanted to bring in some of the best people in the world to write about each of these slices of Dylan's career. So you have this book where all of a sudden, you know, like a couple of years ago, when all of a sudden there's an album coming out of, of, of deep cuts of Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash. And people are like, oh my God, Johnny, I love Johnny Cash. What does he have to do with this like crazy rocker from the 60s? There's a chapter in there to explain like Dylan's relationship to Nashville and country music. So it's not a book you would necessarily read page by page. You would go read the pieces of it that are interesting to you. So that was the conceit behind the book was to to suggest both here's what Dylan's world looks like. And here's why Dylan's world is our world, right? How he helped create the musical and sonic world in which we live. Uh, so that, that was the impetus behind the book was to serve as this kind of huge introduction without ever saying, this is what you have to think. It was more like, here's the context for understanding Dylan and rock and roll or Dylan and Elvis or Dylan and religion. Were there any specific chapters that were uh, particularly enlightening to you that made you see anything in a different way that you hadn't thought about before? Oh, absolutely. The best chapter in the book, in my view, uh, you're not supposed to pick favorite children, but I'll pick this one, uh, is by NPR's music critic. Her name's Ann Powers, and she wrote a, a terrific essay on Dylan's body and and gender. I, I, her topic had been to write uh, about Dylan and gender. It's a rarely, rarely explored topic. It's one of those things we think about in the Academy all the time with writers, but no one had really thought very much about how Dylan uses his, his masculinity, his male body, how he embodies or doesn't embody certain kinds of masculinity. And Anne wrote an incredibly entertaining chapter um, that, that sort of tracks Dylan from what she calls practically like, uh, I, you know, she, she's a hilarious writer too. So these, these jokes won't be very funny, I think, on, on a podcast, but about Dylan looking at like, you know, in, in the very early 60s, like like one member of a, of a gentle lesbian couple sort of, uh, you know, in, a, in his apartment, because he's, you know, he's not like this, like muscular guy. He's got this baby face and and dresses in a kind of gender, gender indiscriminate way. And it's kind of, you know, he's playing the hobo version to all of a sudden in 1981. The best line in the whole book, I think, is in 1981, Bob Dylan took his shirt off, right? All of a sudden, he's trying to be a rocker. and His body's just not made for that kind of masculinity. And of course, it, it ends with a really deep and powerful meditation on how Dylan inhabited his aging body. 
um, and how it, that's become a part of the instrument and how his body has actually been an essential part of his performance all along. And, and, his, and it's particularly the way that he embodies or resists certain understandings of how, how, how male bodies are supposed to work in performance about what they, they can and can't do or shouldn't, shouldn't look like when they're up on stage. We talked about this a little bit in the episode I did with Duncan Hume, where uh, like in the early acoustic songs where it's more gentle, Bob almost inhabits like this little nymph persona. And then when he's yeah. singing a song like pay and blood, he almost like puffs out like, like an aggressive bullfrog or something. And like, yeah. sometimes he seems very like petite and sometimes he seems like very aggressive and he and kind of inhabits not just vocally, but almost like physically inhabits the song he's performing. Yeah, I think you especially see that now when you look at like that, when you look at the way that Dylan's stages have been set up for the last 20 years, whatever, this black box theater, right, the Shakespearean experience of Dylan, Dylan is clearly coming on stage to play a role. I think that's why he doesn't talk to the audience. Actors don't stop in the middle of a play. Right. To like say, so great to be performing Hamlet, you know, in Tulsa. This is great. Man. Well, thank God they don't. That's yeah. just not how it works. Right. Yeah. So, and I, but I think, you know, that's what Dylan's doing. Dylan is performing a role on stage. And so, and his body is clearly a part of that performance. It's, it's not just the songs or the, the sound of his voice, right? It's, it's the body. It's, 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 you have to understand a Dylan concert is a theatrical experience. I mean, we just saw that with the, just uh, with the rough and rowdy ways recording video. I mean, that was very much a sort of example of, I mean, he, the songs weren't actually re synced live, right? Uh, uh, on that film, Dylan, Dylan was an actor. He'd always loved movies. He'd always loved actors. Of course he, he'd wanted to be an actor. Uh, and here he, he's always been acting. And I think that's an important part. It's an important thing to keep in mind uh, and, and almost a kind of useful anecdote. I mean, antidote to this kind of close, like, oh, it's Bob. I mean, yes, but Bob is himself an act like it's a performance, right? I don't I don't think many of us actually know too much about the actual guy named Bob Dylan, um, who decorates his Christmas tree or whatever, you know, his Christmas hedges in Malibu. Right. Uh right. There's this but there's this thing on stage that we love and adore, and that's a it's a character. You talked about teaching Bob. I remember when I talked to Toby Thompson on this show, he, he's a professor at Penn state who's written about Bob. And he said that like one kid told him that he took the class because he had a brother named Dylan. So he got a <laughs> lot of kids that really didn't like you, like your experience that weren't really real well-versed in Bob. Um, I actually next week am going to a high school class for a history of rock and roll class where I'm a guest speaker. And I, I have 45 minutes to summarize Bob. And I've done this a couple of <laughs> times before, uh, you know, so I try to place him in a historical context, try to tie him in like you did to things that they might understand or relate to more. Do you have any advice for me? What other, other things I should <laughs> try to do to try to make them be interested? I, I think I think it's pretty easy for them to get interested. Actually, uh, I think co covers are a great way to do it. Um, they're gonna they're gonna find their way in through sounds that are more familiar to them because the lyrics are in part are enduring. Now, you know, I'm an English professor, so I'm, I'm not a music professor. Um, and you know, to me, it's the lyrics that make Dylan Dylan. I'm not saying the music isn't important, but the lyrics are what's really enduring to me. It's, it's, it's why you, we could even have a debate about whether or not he should win the Nobel prize is, uh, is the lyrics, right? Um, and so the, and those lyrics and the, the melodies are so transportable. They're, they're easily adaptable, easily covered by other people. Um, and so I, I you know, I, again, that, that remains the almost the easiest way in, in for me. And, uh, and once you get the students actually listening to the lyrics, then 
then they can really understand the complexity of, of the of the great great songs um you know tangled up in blue or, or what i mean putting that along helping them explain a song as a painting is you know i found to be transform transformational for students right it's a different they expect because it's a song they expect it to unfold a sort of story right and if you say look time doesn't have to flow that way in a song you're thinking about this in the wrong way that then makes every other song different right is every other song a painting so i think just getting them to see just getting students to see the ways in which lyrics don't answer to the logic of narrative is is the first and biggest um, challenge for a teacher but once you do that then all kinds of stuff begins to to spring out at them um, from the lyrics both old and new well i can't pay to fly you in so i'll just do the best i can with that 45 minutes <laughs> uh, so tell me how you uh first started uh with bob dylan in your life when do you remember hearing him for the first time and when did you maybe consider yourself a fan I'm still not sure I'm a fan. Um, only in the sense that like scholars are supposed to have some detachment. Um, I think we can have attachments uh, as well. That's part like to understand what brings pleasure, but you got to get some critical distance from it um, in order to just see it in context. Uh, I mean, for me, and, and I think this is easy for me in part because I, I grew up in the, I went to, I went to college, I went to high school from 86 to 90 and I graduated from college in 94. So, essentially when i those are your those are always for anybody their most intensive music years right that that sort of maybe that four years before you turn 20 and the four years after you're that's just when your frontal lobe hasn't developed all those things it's just really easy to get sort of affectively connected to the things that are coming out of the radio to feel those emotions more intensely and they're tied to those massive transitions in your life, breaking up with what you thought was the love of your life, getting angry at the world, feeling the world has betrayed you, not living up to its ideals, graduating and leaving friends and family behind, all those sorts of things make make those formative years for anybody in relationship to pop music. It's always hard to, I think, to have critical distance on the pop music of those years in your life. Dylan was producing terrible stuff, basically, right? Under the red sky. And when I came out while I was in college or in high school, no one cared. I mean, Dylan was this like relic. It was interesting that he was still making music, uh, but it was a little like uh, the Grateful Dead. It was, you know, playing Touch of Grey or something. It was like, okay, this is old people music for old people. It's cool. They have their thing. I'm glad he didn't die. Um, but this isn't new music. It's not speaking to me or my generation or anything like that. Now that said, I listened to classic rock stations growing up. I, I drove a beer truck. Uh, and so I lived in Colorado, drive way, way out. Could only pick up a few stations, one of which is a classic rock station. And Dylan had, you know, a pretty steady rotation on a classic rock station. Only a few songs, uh, like a Rolling Stone in particular, Tangled Up in Blue. And I definitely have a, a pretty clear memory of, of hearing uh, like a Rolling Stone for the first time. Springsteen has that line about the snare drum that blows open the doors to your mind, right? It, it felt that way. Like this song was so snarly. It seemed like a love song, but it was also so angry. Like that's teenagerdom right there. Like it definitely captured that moment in my life. And so I'd say that thing, you know, that's my first real experience probably in my memory of hearing Dylan's song. Um, I also remember some of the Nashville stuff because my family was obsessed with Johnny Cash. And so we knew there was a bit of a Dylan connection there and uh, Lay Lady Lay and things like that would, would sort of percolate onto the country Western stations every once in a while as well. Um, but I didn't really think much about Dylan after that. You know, I mean, I 
uh, Love and Theft was it was of interest to academics because it was so uh, because of the way it borrowed from so much other stuff uh, and was connected to this very important book called Love and Theft that I had studied in graduate school. So and so when that came out in two thousand one. I I started to pay a little bit more attention to Dylan, but certainly not with the intention of becoming a a Dylan scholar or anything like that. So, you know, I mean, I, I suppose it's you know, the easiest thing to say is Dylan came to me rather than me coming to Dylan. The sort of the arrival of the archive here was what was what really led me into a, a much deeper and longer investigation of Dylan. I, I came to Tulsa and, and spent much of my first 20 years here focused on James Joyce. And I can look back now and say, this all makes sense. I, I've studied the sort of, for a long time, the, the most important and influential artist of the first half of the 20th century, and now the most important and influential artist of the second half of the 20th century. I think it's essentially unquestionable that that's, when you put Dylan and Joyce together, you've covered the things that made 20th century cultural culture distinctive, transformational, creative, and inventive. Um, they're very different, but, but they each are going to be the ones that 100 years from now, when you teach your anthology of like 1800 to 20. 200 or something like you'll read a story by James Joyce and you'll listen to a song by Bob Dylan and that will cover the 2000 or the, the night that'll cover the 20th century. Something. Yeah. They definitely occupy similar positions within our uh, popular culture and in uh, the world of literature. Can you tell us more about the parallels uh, in a couple, a couple of episodes ago, Andrew Muir told me about the parallels between Shakespeare and Bob. So I would imagine uh, that James Joyce and Bob have a lot of similarities as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that I would single out. I could say a lot about this, but I'll single out two things. Um, the first of which is Dylan and Dylan and Joyce are both wildly experimental, but they're wildly experimental with the stuff of everyday life. So Joyce's Ulysses, for example, right, this long book that's set on a single day. Joyce famously said of that book that you could rebuild the city of Dublin brick by brick. It, it had, in fact, been blown apart by the British after the Easter 1916 uprising. So you could rebuild the city of Dublin brick by brick by reading my book because he was so meticulous in his attention to detail and in mixing in advertising. The main character in the novel sells advertising in newspapers, right? He mixes in popular culture, high culture, sort of dirty jokes, sexuality, music, everything is sort of... Joyce isn't trying to tell the story of this guy, he's trying to tell the story of a whole world, right? So through a single day. And and that's why when you look at like the annotations to Ulysses, that is, you know, a list of like what what all of these references actually mean, it's bigger than the book itself, right? Because Dylan, because Joyce has condensed so much into the book. Dylan is essentially that kind of writer, I think, for the second half of the 20th century, even more condensed because it's song lyrics that he's producing. But, you know, it's as, as we begin to unpack the fact that so many of Dylan's lyrics are, they're not stolen. And, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't want to even begin to imply anything improper about what Dylan's done, but like Joyce, he was a remixer of the culture. He took the blues and advertising and a little bit of painting and an article he read in a newspaper and remixes it together to make a song, right? Uh, that's Dylan's mode of writing. And that was Joyce's mode of writing. This this incredible ability to synthesize the vastness of culture, of not just high culture, not just low culture, not just music, but everything, a sort of Western movie mixed in with sort of, as I said, a sort of joke that he heard on the street, right? It all gets condensed down into a song. That's what Joyce did. Other writers can do the same thing. I think the other thing that makes Joyce and Dylan distinctive, and it's combining these two that makes them geniuses, is they don't shy away from sentimentality. That is, at the heart of Joyce's 
Ulysses is a story about a man and a woman and a and a and a, and a, a sort of young adult, I guess. Uh, you know, a kid who's about twenty years old who's kind of lost his way in the world. And it's 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 a, it's a it's a it's a just an incredibly moving story when you dig down through all the complexity of the book to to realize there's just this really intense sentimental story there. And Dylan loves sentiment. Right? I mean, it's for all of this Dylan snarl that we think about from the 60s, the snarl is interesting because it's laid over the top of a love song, right? because he really wants us to feel and because he feels and we know we're supposed to keep our feelings at an ironic distance, they're being manipulated, you're supposed to be cool, put on your Ray-Bans, not cry, right? But Dylan, from his songs about aging to breakups to politics, he never loses touch with that same sentimentality. It's, I think it's what creates that sort of bobness that, you know, we were talking about earlier, this affective relationship. He feels what I feel and he's honest about it. And it doesn't make me feel like, you know, like I got to keep it at a distance. I got to be cool about it because cool kids don't feel. And it's that embrace of, of, of sentimentality alongside the attempt to take in the whole world. When you put those two things together, I think that's what makes Joyce a great writer. It's what makes Dylan a great, a great songwriter and performer. As I was preparing for the show, I did read one other thing you wrote related to Bob and you had just mentioned uh, magazines and I don't remember what publication it was in, but you wrote something that talked about uh, Bob's interactions with magazines and kind of the cultural niche of magazines that they held at one point. And, and you looked at Bob through that lens. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about why you, uh, chose to write that piece or kind of what, what your uh, takeaway was from that? Sure. I mean, I mean, I wrote about it cause that's the stuff I know best. So as I said a bit earlier, if the early 20th century is not only a golden age of writing it was the golden age of magazines. Um, newsstands were how we got our information, right? This was before television. Um, radio was still a relatively new medium. Just that was what people did for entertainment. The same way that we would watch, uh, you know, sitcoms in the eighties or nineties or, just Netflix and chill. And, you know, in our current era, people bought magazines. That's what they did. They read, they were, they fit every taste. It's where all of the great genres that we associate with early with, you know, with, with literature in general took shape, the romance, the mystery, science fiction, uh, adventure fiction, all these things took shape in magazines. And it's what people they just devoured them. Um, they were the main, they were the main mode of communication between people, right? If to artists on different continents, different countries, this is where you wanted to publish your stuff. It paid far more to publish in a magazine than it did to publish a novel. For example, novels really until the, the second half of the 20th century were afterthoughts. The main money was to be made in magazine publishing. Um, and there were magazines for everything under the sun, from from you know music magazines to these kind of genre magazines I've described to magazines for people who love you know popular mechanics took shape in this time. All of these sort of I love engines. I want magazines about them. There are a million magazines about them. Those are all gone. That's all gone now. Um, but Dylan is of that culture, right? Dylan loved the magazines. Uh, it's clear Dylan read magazines and Dylan's stardom first took shape when magazines were still the dominant form of cultural communication. There was no place for a teenager in 1963 to figure out what other teenagers were listening to, right? The, you could listen to the radio that would told you what people around you might be listening to. But if you're a kid living in Colorado Springs, Colorado or Tulsa, Oklahoma or Waco, Texas, who the hell knows what's going on in New York and LA? Those, you know, those are important places, right? Magazines told you. Billboard Top 40 told you this is what's being played, right? In the in in the mid 60s, we get we start to get the serious rock magazines like Rolling Stone, uh, 
and and so on take shape. But before that, it's teen magazines, right? And that's the very first article published about Dylan is published in uh, what's it called? It was a teen magazine for girls, and Dylan was cast as a as a heartthrob. Like he's <laughs> literally got that little baby face picture, and it's and you see the same copy that had been written, you know, by Columbia Records and distributed to lots of different magazines. Uh, and it's him alongside Sonny and Cher, and like, oh, you know, aren't those Beatles boys cute? kind of thing but this told you what other people were listening to and so dylan's fandom dylan's fame took shape first around the magazines that too is one of those holdovers from the early part of the 20th century he also became absolutely integral to the to 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 the maturation of rock magazines like rolling stone and cream i mean john venner desperately wanted to meet dylan right he wanted him on the cover he wanted to write about that music um Crawdaddy, the very first rock magazine, it was actually published. It was published at Swarthmore College on the on a, on a borrowed photocopy. It was stolen uh, Xerox machine or a mimeograph machine from the English department there, because um, this was the only way you could sort of say, "Look, there's this amazing thing called Bob Dylan. He's writing lyrics. There are these a few other songwriters that are like this. Here's why it's important. I'm just going to get this stuff out of my head. I don't know how to share this with anybody. I can't email you, right? I can't like post it on Instagram. I need to make a magazine and share it. And that's that's where you can really trace the origin of Dylan's fandom. And we we see it. That's one of the things we're tracing in those fan letters I mentioned earlier is the fan letters that the back of these magazines were filled with, would you like Bob Dylan's autograph? Write to this address, right? Would you like to join the Bob Dylan fan club? Write to this address. Uh, and we can trace because people say in the letters, I got your address from Teen Vogue or the equivalent of Teen Vogue, right? Like Teen Scene and Tiger Beat and all those sorts of things. Um, you know, I saw your address there. I'm writing because I want your signature. That's half the letters are just people wanting Dylan's signature sent back to them. Uh, but they know that they need this because they've seen it in the magazine. They've read about him in the magazine. Uh, and that that's become that, that's this absolute lifeblood of musical culture um, up through the 70s, really. I think I must have caught the tail end of it. I had Sports Illustrated for Kids and Mad Magazine, but yeah. I mean, literally the internet came around when I was in fourth or fifth grade and then all of a sudden <laughs> nobody was buying magazines anymore. Uh, I have just a couple more questions for you, Sean. I wanted to rewind a little bit. I know you don't consider yourself a fan, you said necessarily, but I haven't talked to that many guests who fully explored Bob's catalog as an adult and you being someone who's in touch with popular culture and literature, but didn't necessarily know all of Bob's songs and all of his albums. Um, I'm curious, as you went and filled in the blanks and saw that, you know, kind of the forgettable albums of the 80s, like Infidels had Joker Man and Shot of Love had Every Grain of Sand. I think that kind of goes against maybe what the misconception is among the general public that, you know, Bob tapped into something in the 60s. He had a brief comeback in the 70s. He became Christian. He became an alcoholic and he disappeared. That might be kind of the basic understanding of Bob. So did you uh, were there some things that you didn't expect or that you were surprised about Bob's full body of work once you actually went back and looked at everything? That's an interesting question. Um, it would probably take some reflection on my part. Uh, it's so, I mean, now that you say this, of course, I'm like, I'm filled with regret that I didn't keep some diary of my own, like of coming to coming to Dylan late, as you said, and sort of thinking about what's the narrative about what I expect to find here versus what I actually found. Um, I think there is a disconnect and I'm fascinated by that too, that maybe the people that only have a very peripheral knowledge of what Bob is versus the people that are really paying attention to him might have completely different ideas. Yeah. You know, and I, I guess, 
you know, I, I would say that the general consensus of, that you described there, that or the sort of shared narrative, I don't think it's totally wrong. Uh, you know, I, I I do still find most of the '80s albums pretty unforgettable. I find, I guess, I I, I would say this. I think the cover albums that Dylan made. Um, going back to self-portrait are far more interesting than anybody ever gave them credit for uh, and put Dylan far ahead of time, uh, far ahead of himself in time. This is often the case. We were still catching up to Dylan, um, you know, and including sort of those assess- reassessments of his own work, like Biograph. I think Biograph is still far more important than we give it credit for a, a Dylan that's sort of mid-career taking stock and deciding, should I go on? Um, and finding that this was actually an interesting story to tell and it hadn't ended yet um, because he realized he still had all this folk material he could go process again, um, which you begin to see in like Time Out of Mind and stuff like that, right? I think those, those you know, and the, all, the folk cover stuff from the late 90s, I think those are, those are great albums that are totally unappreciated now as moments of Dylan sort of digging back into the past again to pull new stuff into the present. Um, you know, I, you know, that said, I, I don't, I don't, maybe this is my lack of fandom and the urge to be a critic sort of asserting itself. I don't feel the need to like everything Dylan made. And I do think there are plenty of boring songs and I really don't like this kind of rackety sound of the bands in the eighties that are basically drowning out the lyrics. There is something to me to still be said for the fact that like we're I'm not here to hear Dylan and his band. Uh, I'm here to hear Dylan. Uh, it's interesting because because he changed. He never had a sort of steady backing band, right? Even the band only lasted for a short time with him. Uh, and and so I guess you know yeah I guess I would say that 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 general assessment of Dylan still seems about right to me though I would say everything from 2001 to the present is far more interesting uh, than probably anything except a handful of the really great 60s out of that great 60s trilogy. Uh, what he, what he does now as he as he said I'll go back to that 60 inter, 60 minutes interview from much earlier where he said you know I I can do different things now boy can he like he is a walking encyclopedia of American song in the way that no one else can be almost no one else can be. He, he lives it. It's in his blood. It's in his mind. It's in his imagination and dreams. No one can make songs like that because no one else can embody, can take all of that in and still have the creative gene to make something new with it. Uh, even in this age of ubiquitous music, you know, where you can teach a course on Dylan cause it's easy. Like get a Spotify account. That's your whole book quest for the semester, right? It's easy to teach a course on Dylan now or any kind of pop music. Uh, that still doesn't mean you've got it in your head the way that Dylan does. Uh, and I think that's what makes these late albums so extraordinary to me. And I want to close by asking you, what do you think uh, the Tulsa archive ultimately will do for establishing Bob's legacy? Well, I think it's going to do, I think it's going to do two things. One, one of the things that really, I find compelling about it is is the fact that this is the first of these archives we've really got. There's Prince's at Paisley Park, sort of Neil Young's, but we just don't have that many of these like popular music archives. So one of the things that's really fun being here and watching this unfold and helping pieces of it come together are the fact that no one else 
has done this yet. This is like, how do you make an archive like this? What does it look like? How do you describe it? How do people use it? How do you make it available to people? How do you deal with things like copyright and the fact that Dylan has now sold all of his many copyrights in this thing off to different and competing companies? That's going to create a whole mess of its own. But, but this is an interesting archive because unlike if we were to acquire the life archive of Thomas Pynchon, right, or a great contemporary American novelist, we know what to do with that. We know how to organize it. We know how to go through it. We know how to sort it. This is this is undiscovered country in some ways in which we have to figure out, what do you even do with this? That's going to be a 20-year project probably of scholars just getting ahead, just getting their minds around how to put these things together and do scholarly-like things with an archive that has concert posters alongside letters, alongside lyrics, alongside studio session tapes, all that kind of stuff. That's just a complicated process to work out. So because we're going to do that with Dylan first, Dylan's going to be his legacy will be assured because however they do this, as they put this together here, they're setting the technical standard, the sort of, this is a lot of this will be inside baseball, like literally the technical standards for how it gets cataloged and tagged within computer systems. They are building that and everybody else is going to do it the same way because this is the first one to really do it in a, in a substantive way. Right. So, so in some sense, this is going to be a, a touchstone for all popular music archives going forward. That's going to, alone going to ensure that Dylan's going to be important 200 years from now. There will be books written about how the Bob Dylan archive organized itself and how weird that is and why we should do it a different way. Right? That'll be hundreds of years from now. Um, you know, I think the other thing um, that the archive does, and, and Dylan's bold in this, is, I mean, it, it's really nerve wracking to expose your archive. Imagine if you took everything you'd ever written, every email, right? Every phone call, I mean, everything that you have some record of, your record collection, your library, and just gave it to the public and said, here, pick around in it and see what you think I am. <laughs> and I'm like, I would never do that. <laughs> Absolutely not, right? Um, Dylan has pulled some sensitive materials from it. Some of it's embargoed, which just means we can't look at it for a while. Um, because it's clearly so intensely personal. Uh, I remember looking in the early records, like they'd accidentally included things like his kids' grades, right? Uh, you know, cards were mixed into some of the files, things that, you know, you're like, yeah, that probably shouldn't be there. <laughs> um, but, but I think because of Dylan's bravery and being willing to say, okay, yeah, read around in my life, read around in my work, read around in everything I've created, that's a kind of honesty that that we think we see in a lot of the songs too that sort of willingness to expose himself that is also going to make dylan's legacy last we live in an age of where every especially now where every legacy every star every performing act is so carefully curated right because you might get canceled at any moment or you know you got to make sure you've got literally paid professionals making sure your instagram lines up with your uh you know with your tweets which uh lines up with your you know, tour dates and, and whatnot. I mean, it's just, we live in this age of so carefully publicly curated personalities that I, I, I think most artists are just going to be resistant to ever say, here's a look behind the curtain. Okay. Yeah. Look, I, you know, that was a professional that was writing all my tweets. I didn't say any of that shit. Like, you know, I was getting drunk or whatever. Um, but Dylan has just kind of laid it all out there and let us look at it. And there aren't going to be that many artists that are going to be that brave. I don't think, uh, that'll be around in my lifetime that are going to be of Dylan's stature, uh, for example. So I think that also is going to assure his legacy because people like me, scholars, the people are going to say, okay, look, I want to teach something about why popular music is arguably the most important poetic genre of the 20th century. 
how do I do that? Well, Dylan and I, I can let my students look at his letters and I can show him the lyrics and the performances and here's a recording and that just fits into a history class, an English class, you know, whatever. And so Dylan's courage in exposing the archive is also the thing that's going to help ensure, uh, ensure that his legacy endures almost regardless of how we come to think about how good the music is or isn't. Uh, but that takes real courage and uh, it's going to cement his legacy. have been listening to the bobcats a bob dylan fan podcast you can find back episodes of the show on anchor apple podcasts and spotify please feel free to rate review and share a link to this podcast with your bob loving friends around the world for the latest bob dylan news and commentary follow me on twitter at matt underscore stike once again thanks for listening and be sure to join us next time for another episode of the bobcats (laughs) 